Father, I thank you for this morning, Lord. We do continue to lift up Norma, God, and just pray that you would touch her body, Father, that you would um, just heal her and bring her back to perfect health, Lord, and uh, for her team, and that they would experience um, healing, Father, and uh, they would be able to complete what you've called them to, Lord. And Father, I uh, just thank you for our time together this morning, Lord, and I just pray, Father, that you would just go before us, Father, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, that you would settle within us, Father, and that we would just experience um, all that you would have for us, Father, that we would walk away changed, that we would humble ourselves before you this morning, God, that you would give us wisdom and insight, Father, that we would be repentant, Father, that we would be encouraged, Father, that we would be open to conviction, Father, and we would be quick to obedience in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we do thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace, for your mercy. Father, for there is no one like you, for you alone are Lord. God, we come today to lift up Norma to you. We pray, God, for your healing touch upon her body. We pray, God, that even in the midst of this infirmity, God, that you would use her mightily to be a witness to the doctors, to the nurses, and even to the other patients. We pray, God, that you would raise her up from this sickbed and that, God, what you have purposed her to fulfill while she's there will be accomplished. We pray for the other team members as well, God, that you would heal them, that you would strengthen this team, God, that they would not grow discouraged or weary, but, God, that they would continue to persevere through, and that, God, that they would see a mighty harvest come, Father, from this time of sowing. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather this morning, Lord, to open up your word yet again. I pray, God, that each of us would be attentive, God, that our soil of our hearts would be good soil to receive, that our lives, God, would begin to produce fruit, God, that our lives would honor you in all that we say and do. We pray, God, that we would not leave this place today as we walked in. God, truly that we would yield and submit our lives unto you. God, that we would live lives that would please you, Holy Spirit, and not lives that would grieve you. So, Father, we say, come and have your way. Abide with us today. Transform us, God, by the renewing of our minds. Heal our brokenness, God. Calm our fears. Settle within us, God, that peace that surpasses all understanding. Knowing, God, that you are for us and not against us. And that you've called us to give thanks unto you, for your love endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning to everyone. Genesis chapter 13 is where we're heading. As you're turning there... <clears throat> We've got a lot to go through today. So I'd encourage you just to pay attention. Um, this first part of Genesis um, was very convicting, even for myself. So many times we take things that matters into our own hands. And when we take matters into our own hands, we make a mess of things. And that's everything. Relationally, physically, emotionally, you name it. When we decide to go our way, to try to fix things in our timing, trust me, and I think we all can probably testify, because we probably all have seen it, we make a mess of things. But God is gracious. God is gracious. It's when we trust in Him, you all. It's when we mature and we grow to a place of truly trusting in Him. Knowing that He's God. And God alone. Like 
he is for us and not against us. Like these words that, that, that we are hearing and that we're learning and, and we're learning of God, like that should be drawing us ever so close to him. Relying on him. Knowing that he will work all things out for the good who are called according to his purpose and love him. We've got to remember, God, y'all, that God is in control. Either we believe that or we don't. Like, are we truly trusting Him? I began studying these portions of Scripture. We're going to read through chapter 15 today. And as I've been reading and, and studying it, you know, I've been taking my notes and you know, praying through and asking the Lord just to, you know, God, what encouragement can, can we receive from this portion of, of Scripture? And usually after my note time and my devotional time, like, I, could, I feel really encouraged and I'm like, okay, God, this is a word for us. You know, I'm just not seeking for myself and I'm seeking for us collectively as a fellowship. Like, God, how can we be encouraged to continue to grow and to mature? Well, I was sharing with Carrie in, in our prayer time this morning. During my time this uh, week or so, I spending time in these scriptures, I just wasn't satisfied. Like I knew there was something missing. And, and it's the only way I could describe it. It's like if you eat a meal and you, you, it just didn't satisfy you. You're just, just still hungry. I just didn't hit the spot. So I began to pray like, God, I want to be satisfied. You know, I just don't want to, you know, okay, this is, this is an, an encouragement, but God, no, there's something there. Now, rather you're going to find it is for you today or not, I don't know, but I know for me, after I prayed that prayer to, to, to fully be satisfied, I was led to this commentary that satisfied me. It brought such conviction to my own life draw me to a place of repentance and like, oh God, yet again I see for how great you are, how faithful you are to those who walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what I want to challenge us today as we're reading through chapters 13 through 15. I want you to really be honest with yourself. Are you walking by faith or are you walking by sight? Walking by sight will always leave you broken. You will not be satisfied. You'll make a mess of things, as I was talking about earlier. But when we walk by faith, wow. God promises that fullness of life. He's going to take care of his own. And we can have confidence in that. And I'm not talking about faith like the what we hear nowadays that is promoted where it's just insane. Where God's a gene in the bottle that's just going to grant us everything. And that faith movement that's out there that's actually not leading people to Jesus. It's leading people to themselves. <laughs> Name it and claim it. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about faith. Deep-rooted faith in God and God alone. That His timing is perfect. That His ways are perfect. 
like he's God? Do you have faith that he is God? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ, his son, who came and laid his life down for you? Who was resurrected from the dead? Who in that defeated sin and death and he ascended into heaven and now he's at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us and the Holy Spirit has been released <laughs> given to those who call upon the name of the Lord we are empowered with the Spirit of God to live as we should to live as we should to live by faith are we seeking him Oh, I pray today that we would. Even as we're going to go into the book of Matthew today, it's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge us about our conduct as believers. And then we're going to move into the book of Psalm, one of the Psalms today. And that Psalm that we're going to read today is a Psalm that I pray that it would be brought to our attention when we find the seasons in our life that, are, that is the most trying. The psalmist talks about of the great sorrow that he's experiencing, but great comfort that he can receive. And then we're going to conclude in the book of Proverbs. It's really going to challenge us. Either we're living for God, or we're not. If you're not living for God, if you do not have the fear of the Lord, if you're not following the knowledge in which you are receiving, then your life would be chaos. Oh, but those who trust in the Lord, who trust in Him, who fear Him, will live a satisfied life. We have hope, you all. We have hope. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. That hope in Jesus will never disappoint us. So I'm not quite sure what we're all facing today or what our week has been like. But I'm here to tell you that as we're opening the scriptures this morning, think upon Jesus. Think upon hope. That he is the author and the finisher of our faith. If you're calling him Lord, if you truly belong to him, he is the author and the finisher of what he has called you to. And let's place our hope in him. But we have some lessons to learn today. So if you're there at chapter 13 of Genesis, <clears throat> let's begin. We pick up with Abram. So Abram left Egypt and traveled north to the Negev along with his wife and Lot, and all that they owned. Now remember, Lot was Abram's nephew. From the Negev, they continued traveling by stages toward Bethel, and they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they had camped before. This was the same place where Abram had built the altar, and there he worshipped the Lord again. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep and goats and herds and cattle and many tents. But the Lord could not support both. I'm sorry. 
But the land, not the Lord, could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. Finally, Abram said to Lot, Let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zor. The whole area was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I want you to pay attention to verse 10. Lot took a long Look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zor. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. So Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. Lot chose for himself. Verse 12. So Abram, I'm sorry, verse 11. <clears throat> so Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan and Lot moved his tents to take place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. I'd like you to take note of where Lot set up camp. It was at a place near Sodom. Verse 13 tells us, But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. This is where Lot set up camp. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, Look as far as you can see in every direction, north, south, east, and west. I am giving you all this land, as far as you can see, to you and your descendants, as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants, that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. Take note of verse 18. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak grove belonging to Mimir. Then he built another altar to the Lord. A conflict arose. Between Lot and Abram, between their herdsmen, there was a conflict among them. But Lot, 
chose for himself when given the opportunity to go his way. He looked at what's before him and it looked good. He must have thought he pulled one over on Abram. Lot moved on with all of his possessions, with his family, and he took up camp among the wicked people. Not everything that looks good is righteous. Not everything that draws you to it is where you should be going. Lot never inquired of the Lord. We don't read Lot building an altar, worshiping God. And we see the difference with Abram. After Lot left, the Lord spoke. And did you see what the Lord said to Abram? Look, for everywhere that you see, it's going to be given to you and to your descendants. Funny, Abram had no children at this time. Everything the Lord was promising to Abram, in Abram's reality, how can this be? But what I was specifically moved, and especially as we get into this commentary, I was so moved that Abram didn't inquire of the Lord yet, at this time. He just moved. He did what the Lord instructed him to do. He didn't inquire of the Lord at this time about his descendants. All of this was going to be given to him. And he moved. And in moving and entrusting God, again we see this theme that we've been going through and reading as we're studying through Genesis. In obedience, your obedience will draw you to worship. And I've been challenging us, if you're having a problem worshiping God, that I would start with your heart, because you're disobeying somewhere. Disobedience will never lead you to worship. Disobedience will always lead you to self. It will always lead you to condemnation, shame, and guilt, and poor me, and poor my life, and everything else. And your eyes are so focused on you that you're not even focusing on God. But true obedience will always lead you to worship. And true obedience cannot be done if you're walking by sight. No, true obedience can only be done if you're walking by faith. By faith. And Abram, who becomes Abraham, is the father of faith. We go on to chapter 14, and we're going to read it again, yet Abram's going to rescue Lot. Mm. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm not going to butcher names. <laughs> There's a lot of kings that are going to be listed here. Just read them as you read them. I'm just going to kind of move on from the kings. But we're going to find that Abram is going to have to rescue Lot. So let's begin to read here in verse 1 of chapter 14. About this time, war broke out in the region... And this king of Babylonia and these other kings came together and they fought against another group of kings in that area. 
And the second group of kings, verse 3, joined forces in the Sidon Valley, that is the Valley of the Dead Sea. And for 12 years they have been subject to this king, but in the 13th year they rebelled against him. One year later, this king and his allies arrived and defeated this other group. Verse 7, they turned back and came into in Mishpat, now called Kadesh, and conquered all the territory, and also along with the Amorites living in Hazaron Tamar. So we see these battles taking place. There's one group coming against another. If you read through verse 8, through verse 10, at 10, we see again there's this fight going on, 8 through verse 8 and 9 and 10. As it happens, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits, and as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the tar pits, while the rest escaped into the mountains. Victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. And look at verse 12. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. So Abram, I'm sorry, so Lot is no longer on the outskirts of Sodom. We read now that he's, he was living inside Sodom, and we're going to hear more about that later. But one of the Lot's men, but one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove, belonging to Mamre the Amorite, and Mamre and his relatives, Eshcol and Anor, were Abram's allies. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. I am so moved by this because, again, as you're reading through this portion of, of Scripture, you're seeing how just, just this conflict that's arising between these two groups, how these kings are overtaking, how war is going on. And yet Abram, hearing that Lot has been captured, rounds up 318 men. To me, that's such an act of faith. He, he wasn't provoked by fear hearing about all the destruction and all the casualties that have taken place what he knew is that his nephew was in trouble and we're going for him then he pursued this king's army until he called up with them at Dan there he divided his men and attacked during the night and this king's army fled, but Abram chased him as far as Hoboah near Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that it wasn't just enough to defeat this king, but Abram also wanted to take back everything that was taken from Lot. After Abram returned from his victory over this king and all of his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, 
And the high priest of God most high brought Abram some bread and wine, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. God was in the midst of the battle. God brought Abram and the 318 trained men to victory. It wasn't Abram and it wasn't these men, it was God. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Give me the people, and you can keep the spoil. And Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take such much as a single thread or sandal thong from which for what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten. And I request that you give me a fair, give a fair share of the goods to my allies. Wow. All of this was being presented to Abram. And Abram said, no, no, no. I'm not accepting that. Because in accepting that, you will say, you. Look what he said here. Made me rich. No. I will only accept only what my young warriors have already eaten. I just request that you take care. Look at that. Give fair share of the goods to my allies. Take care of them. See, Abram's hope is not in the spoils that were captured. Abram's hope was in the Lord God. We're going to do verse 21 of chapter 15. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, children, these two servants that he's listed here, a servant in my household will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir. You will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. The God of the impossible is speaking. Your circumstances, Abram, the reality of life as you see it may not agree with what I'm speaking, but I am God. And I will bring about what I have purposed. 
Go look, Abraham. Look at the sky. Look at the stars. It's amazing. For a man that has no children, his wife is barren, and yet God is telling him, your descendants, this is how many descendants you will have. And by faith, Abraham believed. Bless you. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abraham replied, O oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pit and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants. All the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by all these ites. <laughs> you can read all the ites there. Wow. As I said, and as I was meditating on this portion of Scripture, I was like, wow, God. Here you are, laying everything out for Abram. And yet in the midst of laying everything out, do you see what God spoke to Abram about his descendants? You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them and in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, Abram, you're going to die at a ripe old age. But understand this. After four generations, your descendants will return to this land where the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. God was not yet ready to destroy the Amorites. But God was laying out to Abram this is what I'm going to bring about. But in, do so, in, do, in doing so, I will bring your descendants back. And we don't read here that Abraham, or Abram at that time, questioned God regarding Abram's descendants being oppressed as slaves. 
for not just a year, but 400 years. And Abram trusted God with what God has purposed and planned. So my question for you is, and for myself, are we trusting God? Even when things may not be going the way that we would like. Can we still trust Him? I want to share these notes with you here. This is by a guy named Keith R. Crail. In these chapters of Genesis, we will look, or we have looked, at the lives of two men, Abram and Lot. Two family members that lived very different lives. Thirteen chapters in Genesis are devoted to the life of, and times of Abram. Of these, five tell the story of Lot, his nephew. Unlike Abram's story, Lot describes complete failure. Why is so much space devoted to telling us about Lot's tragedy? His life offers a sharp contrast to Abram's. Lot represents the walk of sight, while Abram's represents the walk of faith. Lot looks for a city built by human hands. Abram looks for a city whose builder is God. Lot fails, Abram succeeds. In both lives, we see critical lessons that relate to our struggle today. This section brings out three principles that will help us walk by faith and not by sight. These three principles that this man wrote is what I want to share with us today. The first one, handle your conflicts wisely and graciously. you to remember that. I just don't want us to be hearers of the words. I want us to be doers of the word. And as children of God, if you're sitting here today and you're calling yourself a Christian, then a life lesson that you can learn from the chapters in which we read today, the first one is to handle your conflicts wisely and graciously. He goes on, when handling conflicts, believers should seek to resolve the conflict. How are we doing with resolving conflicts in our lives, you all? Because as believers, you be, should be seeking to resolve it. Because Abram took the initiative to resolve the conflict with Lot. Abram could have said, now look here, Lot. This land belongs to me. God has promised it to me, not you. You'll simply have to move on. Abram could have said that. And so many times we get lost in demanding our rights. Pushing our agenda. But that's not how we ought to be living as Christians. Because instead, Abram surrendered his personal rights and sacrificed his interests. Likewise, it is our responsibility to, to surrender our personal rights. The lazy, unbelieving way is to let conflict drift and become steadily worse. Yet the Bible is clear, where there is conflict with a brother or sister, we should take the initiative. 
The life of faith involves learning to live with brothers and sisters, within community with others. With that said, there are times, though, when within that community of brothers and sisters, there may be times where we must separate for the sake of peace. This side of heaven, believers will not always see eye to eye. Therefore, there are occasions where a parting of the ways is appropriate. We must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I hope we maintain a hold of that last statement. We must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That should be our motives. Because we're having an understanding of how we're to handle our conflicts wisely and graciously. To maintain the peace. You don't always get your way. And you're not there to demand your way. You're, you're to begin to live a life that you're getting over yourself. It's not about you. It's about God. And as a child of God, you are to reflect Him to others. And there may be times in conflict where you are going to have to set that boundary up where you have to separate from others. And that's okay. Because the motive of separating is just to maintain the peace. There's no need to continue to allow it to continue. Don't be lazy and unbelieving. <laughs> be a person full of faith. That this just isn't working out, so we must separate. That other person may do whatever they want. They have to work within their own selves, their relationship with God. But with you, you make the choice, you make the decision. I'm going to maintain the peace. And if separation is what's going to maintain it, then so be it. I would rather not have other believers or other people look upon this situation and see nothing but strife and division and God be dishonored. Believers should also exhibit tenderness, being gracious. Twice, Abram says, please, or I pray to you, or I pray you. He then appealed to Lot to their kinship, for we are brothers. Unlike Cain, Abram believed he was his brother's keeper. He diffused any anger or defensiveness that Lot may have had, and he refused to argue. Wow! I pray we get this. Abram refused to argue. No matter how defensive or angry Lot would have become, Abram's like, I'm not fighting with you. I refuse to argue with you. Oh, that we would be challenged, you all. To put our life in Christ into action. That we will allow the Holy Spirit to grow us and to mature us. We don't have to live lives that are chaotic. We don't have to continue to give in to, to, the, to the sin that so easily entangles us. No, the Bible says throw it off. Throw it off. God. So it's like, wow. He refused to argue. May we follow in the footsteps of Abram and refuse to fight or argue. Instead, may we exhibit tenderness with the goal of unity. 
Believers should also wait on God. When confronted with worrying circumstances that seem to be clamoring for his immediate action, Abram's first reaction was to do nothing. That hit me so hard. I was like, oh God, I want to get to that place, God. Where it would be said of me that I'm not just going to react to try to fix or try to manipulate, to try to make things work. No, God, I just want to wait for you. Look, his first reaction was to do nothing in and of himself. He waited on God. He waited. He simply waited. He was confident that God would soon make his way clear. Grow me, grow us in confidence in God. Listen, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what's ahead of you this week. I don't know what you're going to face when you walk out of here today. I don't know what is going on. But what I can tell you is that God will work it out. And I'm not saying that because those are good words to say. No, I'm experiencing that. I am up against the hugest mountain giant that I have faced in many years. And there's a part of me that just wants to give up and give in. There's a part of me that is just so overwhelmed and anxious. I just don't see a way out, God. God says, where is your hope, Rob? Where is your confidence in me? So I'm just not saying things because these are good words to say. No, I'm telling you because I'm experiencing it. You and I are experiencing it. Like one more chaotic mess hits us and, and we may just crumble. <laughs> Reality. But God sustains us. God keeps us. I barely slept last night. Because my mind just races. Not knowing what the next thing will be. But God sustains us. God keeps us. And I hope is in God, and that's why I can get up today and stand before you. That my faith arise and that my enemies will be scattered. Then I would trust in God. That no matter what we're facing, God is good and God is gracious. God is good and God is gracious. He simply waited. He was confident that God will soon make his way clear. On this occasion, Abram refused to take matters into his own hands. We've seen and we will see where Abram chooses at times to take matters into his own hands and they never work out for the good. <laughs> but in th on this occasion, 
He refused to take matters into his own hands. Instead, he left his circumstances in God's capable hands. I sense that Abram had a great deal of confidence because he knew by faith that no matter what Lot chose, God would fulfill his covenant promises in his own life. Abram didn't get ahead in life. I love this. Pay attention to this. Abram didn't get ahead in life by looking out for number one. No, it was God who exalted him because he placed the interests of others ahead of his own. The world's way of getting ahead is to look out for number one, but God's way is to look up to number one and be a blessing to others. Do you remember when we first opened up, we started reading about Abram? The whole purpose of what God was going to do in Abraham's life, do you remember what I encouraged you on to take note of? Is that he would be a blessing to others. There was a, there's a purpose behind God's working in your life and fulfilling what God has called you to. Remember the Bible says that he has created us good works to do. But they're not to point to you. They're to point to him. But those good works are to be a blessing to others. Don't look out. For number one, look up to the only one who can work things out and make you a blessing to others. The second point that we can learn is to view life from an eternal, eternal perspective. Lot didn't have an eternal perspective. Lot saw, he chose, and he acted. Lot saw, he chose, and then he acted. And to be honest, how quick are we at that? We react. We just try to make quick decisions because things may look right. This may look like the right way to go or this may look like the right way to resolve the problem. This may look like the right one to connect with. Be careful of what you are seeing that looks right. Because Lot acted this way, this reveals the downward spiral of sin. We can see this in Lot's three choices. So now let's look at these three choices that Lot's made. That Lot made. First, Lot chose himself ahead of others. The text records these words. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan. What a revealing statement. Lot's primary concern wasn't the glory of God or the benefit of his family or even of Abram's or even of Lot's own spiritual welfare. His primary concern was, what's in it for me? Are you living that way? <laughs> Always thinking about yourself. What's in it for me? That's not how you're to be living. You're dead to that old life. You're a new creation now. Thinking of others before you think of yourself. That's how Christians ought to be living. And we're going to see here, look, look at this. Because he thought of this, we must remember Proverbs 14 verse 12. There is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death or destruction. Lot first pitched his tent near Sodom, but before too long, 
he moved into the city. Some decisions may not seem very significant, but they set up a particular course for our lives. The decision may not seem very important, but its final outcome can be terrifying and tragic. Second, Lot chose his occupation over his family. Lot had flocks and herds and tents, but he did not have an altar. As a result, he did not ask, is this a good place to raise children? He asked, instead, is this a good place to raise cattle? He did not ask what God had chosen for him. He did not consider the impact that living in Sin City would have on his wife, his children, and himself. His choice was entirely determined by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Third, Lot chose the immediate over the future. Lot's eyes became the windows of his soul. He chose the path of least resistance. It is not that Lot was evil. He simply seemed to be adrift without an anchor. As we will see in the upcoming chapters, this would prove to be the biggest mistake of Lot's life. As a result of this careless choice, his wife turned into a pillar of salt. His girls would commit incest with him, and Lot, a righteous man, will live an unrighteous life. The third principle that we can learn is to express confidence in God's promises. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 through 16, it states that the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot has separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. It is interesting to note that God did not speak to Abram until after Abram had made his decision to finally obey God's initial command. Do you remember what that initial command was? Abram was to separate from his father's household. But Abram, when he left, had Lot with him. And it wasn't until finally that Lot and Abram was separated that God finally spoke. Humanly speaking, the only thing that stood in the way of divine blessing was human disobedience. God eventually removed the barrier by forcibly separating Abraham and Lot. At that point, God once again speaks to Abram and reaffirms his promises. I believe that many of us have missed tremendous blessings in life and the opportunity to be used of the Lord simply because we have refused to obey his word. In most cases, we trade away the bounty of God for the scraps of the world. Despite occasional failures, Abram was a man of faith. In the face of unbelievable odds, he built an altar to the Lord. Do you know what he is saying by building an altar? Lord, I don't know how it is going to happen. I don't know how you're going to do it. It sounds impossible, but if you said it, I'm going to build an altar and trust you for the impossible. I would encourage you that some of us just need to go build an altar. Maybe not a physical altar, <laughs> but a spiritual one where you go into a place of worship. Trusting God. I may not see a way out of this, but God, my trust is in you. Trust. 
In the end, Lot, who sought this world, lost it. And Abram, who was willing to give up anything for the honor of God, found it. And I love how he ends this. It was in the region of Hebron, and Hebron means communion, that Abram made his home base and was eventually buried there. How appropriate for Abram's life to be characterized by communion and friendship with God. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Again, we are in the verse, I'm sorry, verse 27 is where we're heading. We've started this reading through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Beatitudes, and those who were with us on Friday nights when we were doing the study of K. Arthur's through the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we were reminded in the study that this portion of Scripture Jesus is laying out how a true follower of his ought to be living. He starts by revealing the character of a true follower, which then leads to the conflict that the true follower will face from the people of this earth. And then he leads us to the conduct of how one should live. And so, in verse 27 is where we're picking up. And we're going to read through verse 48. Chapter 5. Jesus speaking. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have learned of the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say... That a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Sexual sin, you all. It's so destructive. It may feel good at the moment, but it's destructive. Sex, God created it, and God honors it between a husband and a wife. When we burn with lust, when we're trying to, 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 to please ourselves by having sex out apart from what God has ordained it to be, it's foolishness. Because it's destructive. This world lives off of its appetites. The lost, unsaved people live off of their appetites, given into lust, 
giving into perversion, giving into whatever feels right. I saw this little thing they call it memes, and it said it showed it, it showed the church, and it says the world wants the church to remain behind its doors, and then underneath it showed the 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 the, the portrayal of sex out into the streets of people celebrating their sexual identities and their perversion. And then it said, but yet the world wants to parade its sexual appetites down the streets for all to see. And how true is that? Have your faith and have your religion, but keep it to yourself. But I'm going to live however I want to live and do whoever I wanted to do. And I'm going to flaunt it in front of you. God help us. Unless we're just thinking too about the homosexual community, no. We're talking about straight heterosexuals who are just as perverted as the homosexual community. Sex outside of what God designed it is perversion. Mankind can give itself to whoever and whatever it wants to, to satisfy its desires. But that's not how a Christian ought to be living. You're to have self-control. And in this teaching, Jesus isn't saying, you know, figuratively or, you know, that you, you know, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. No, but he is making a statement here to do what is needed. To do what is needed. To sever whatever is causing you to sin. And I love when Kay Arthur was teaching it. Some of us need to get rid of the internet. Some of us need to get rid of relationships that constantly draw us back to sex outside of what God's designed. Some of us need to get rid of the perversion that we watch on television. Some of us just need to, to grow up. And to start acting like Christians. But do whatever you need to do to stay right with God. Because it's best to do drastic things than to end up where? In hell. Jesus' words. Lest we want to believe the church that's preaching that there is no hell. I find it interesting that they can build a teaching and people fall enslaved to it thinking that everything's right, I can live however I want to live, and it doesn't matter to Jesus. Jesus himself, these are Jesus' words. It's best that you take drastic measures to keep you from sinning than to end up in hell. So whatever you need to do in your life to keep yourself pure, you better do it. Because you're going to answer to Jesus. You're going to answer to Jesus. And if you're finding your self-fulfillment, if you're finding your, your value because you're giving yourself away sexually, you're lost. You're lost. You're not a Christian. Because Christians don't live that way. Christians don't seek relationships or seek the things in this world to fulfill them. Then he moves right along into to divorce. 
He lays out this understanding. And when I read these words, I'm so encouraged about honoring relationships. In a day and age when marriage is almost just disregarded, more so in, in the church, we would expect it out in the world. But when marriage in the church is dishonored, what are we doing? What are we doing? We ought to honor our relationships. We ought to honor marriage. And you see what Jesus says here? A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce because this is what the law says. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. When adultery is involved, when one or both in the marriage have given themselves to others, there is hope to recover. There is hope to recover. But if there is no recovery, then divorce. But again, when adultery occurs, when adultery happens, when we give ourselves to someone else that is not our husband or our wife, we're trying to fulfill our desires. Whatever they are. Sexually or emotionally or whatever. Well, you just don't know what she does for me. You just don't know what he does for me. Listen, marriage isn't easy. It's work. It's work. And we're to honor God in our marriages. If you're not honoring God in your marriage, then I'm not quite sure what's going on. But you can't honor God in your marriage if you're not honoring God for yourself. As I pray for married couples, I always pray first that they'll be reconciled to God. And then in reconciling to God, that they are reconciled unto each other. Because without God... What do they have? But Jesus' words. Sexual sin, sexual perversion, you name it, whatever it is. Where does sin come from? It comes from the desires that are from within. Your desires. Something is driving you to just to give yourself away so freely. But that's not what God intended you to do. You can choose to continue that route, but I would like for you to hear Jesus' words. You will end up in hell. Jesus' words. Honor your body. Honor relationships. He goes on here. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven... Because of heaven is God's throne, 
And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn your hair white or black. Just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Honor your body, honor your relationships, and honor your word. Your conduct as a believer. Honor your body, honor relationships, and honor your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be wishy-washy. You have heard the law, verse 38, that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. Give those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. When he's speaking here, I can't help but think of the time in which he's speaking on how these people were being persecuted or what they, what they were going through. He's telling them to live differently. Look differently. Act differently. Serve others. Think of them before you think of yourself. Remember Abram that we just read about? He didn't look to satisfy himself. He trusted God. He trusted God. And I love this. That when he says here, if a soldier demands you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two. Could you only imagine when these people were being forced to carry the soldier's gear? And they got to that final mile and they were like, oh, here, just take it. But to get to that place and to say, no, I'll go an extra mile for you. That goes beyond ourself. It goes beyond ourself. Carry that load for an extra mile. Serve the soldier. Remain meek. And humble. We're going to talk about meekness in a minute. Verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives us his, I'm sorry, for he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do not do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus' words laying out the understanding of how we should conduct ourselves. Let's talk about meekness. We need to be meek. 
Meekness is an attribute of human nature and behavior. It has been de defined several ways. Righteous, humble, teachable, and patient under suffering. Long-suffering, willing to follow the gospel teaching or an attribute of a true disciple. Meekness is complete submission of our thoughts and will to the Lord. It's a gentleness towards others. Meekness doesn't fight back. It's a strength and power that reveals a trust in the Lord and not reacting. Meekness. Meekness is not weakness. We become meek once we have seen the poverty of our spirit and have mourned over our sin. Meekness is an attitude of the heart that lays before God's throne, humble and in full submission. Meekness allows you to remain moldable to the potter. Meekness. To remain humble. To really take note of your conduct. If you say you are a believer, if you're sitting in this room and you don't believe, then none of this makes sense. Because your desire is just to live however you want. You'll get up from this day and you'll go and do what you want. You'll give in to your desires. You'll, you'll demand your rights, your ways. You'll be quick to be angry. And to do what you want and to demand others to do for you. But a true follower of Christ that is not how they live. It is not their consistent walk and pattern. Now, does that mean that a child of God would fall into that temptation and give in to that hostile overtaking and becoming angry and just demanding of themselves? But they're quick to repent. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction, they're quick to repent, to turn back to God, to reconcile whatever was broken. That's a true Christian. Again, the, the Christian life is not seeking to be better than others. No, the Christian life, you are humble and you're there to serve others. But if your life is marked by a consistent, self-driven life, and there's no repentance, or you play the repentant game, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God. But in reality, you're not sorry. Because your life just is continually marked by it. Then hear Jesus' word. Hell is your place when you take your last breath because you are a worker of iniquity. You are a sinner who has never turned to God or accepted Jesus. Jesus is word, you all. 
Not man's words, not man's way of, of, of listing rules and all. No, Jesus' words being laid out before us. Here is your character as one of my followers. Understand you will face conflict, but this is how you are to conduct yourselves. But see, either he's God or he's not. But we are marked, if you're calling yourself a Christian, you are marked. You carry his name. You, you're, you are to display him to others. Because you willingly laid your life down to pick up his life. This new life, you've been born again. And so I want to challenge you, you all. Eternity. It's a very long time. There's no end to it. But Jesus came. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I don't know why we want to continue to play games. Or to be enslaved to the very nature of sin that its purpose is to kill us. When God freely gave in expressing his love, his one and only son. That took upon your punishment to reconcile you back to God. Where you will live forever with him. Now, there's such great hope in Christ. There's such great hope in Jesus. But understand this. Read Scripture. See what Jesus says. See what the men of God penned, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, in the New Testament, on how Christians and the church ought to be living. We've got to mature, y'all. We have to grow up. There is a way in which we are to live, and it's a way that's honoring God. Go to Psalm chapter, I mean, yeah, Psalm 61. No, my goodness, Psalm 6, verse 1. I don't know if you have, and if you haven't, I don't know when you will, but we all will face a night, and night not just meaning the darkness of night, but a long period of time, if you would, the dark night of the soul, where you're overwhelmed, you're anxious, life is pressing in on every side. Jesus himself tells his followers, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. For I already overcame the world. Jesus, you all. I love the comfort and the hope that we can take from this psalm. 
because this psalmist was experiencing such great sorrow. O oh Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me because of your unfailing love. For the dead do not remember you. Who can praise you from the grave? I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because of all my enemies. Go away, all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord will answer my prayer. May all my enemies be disgraced and terrified. May they suddenly turn back in shame. The points I want to lay out for us to, to, to take away from this reading in hopes to encourage us through this week, we can cry out for His mercy knowing that He is the one that can heal us and deliver us. His love endures forever. He knows that we are overwhelmed and at the end of ourselves filled with such grief and sorrow. He hears our weeping. He hears our cry for mercy. And did you see this? He accepts our prayers. He is faithful. He is slow to anger and is gracious and filled with love for us. For us. We must turn to Him with a sincere heart because the Word of God says that we will find Him if we seek Him with our whole heart. I love the picture <coughs> that was portrayed in the psalm of such great agony and sorrow. But I love the psalmist didn't allow their agony and sorrow to become their God. No, they looked up to the one who understands that they are filled with such grief and sorrow. Their hope is in God and God alone. God is for us, you all. He's not against us. He heals us and He delivers us. And we can hold fast that his timing is perfect. We may, not try, we may not gain an understanding of why we have to endure what we have to endure, but most of the things that we have to endure, we bring about ourselves because we live like Lot. We went our way. Sin in our lives. Wrong decisions. Wrong choices. But there are other areas in our life where it's not you. It's just the circumstances around you. Others are making decisions. People's choices affect others. So your agony of the soul may not be the burden of your own sin, though it could be. And if it is, repent. But if it isn't, it's just the pressures of life 
It's the cares for, for loved ones who are living ungodly. It's just the state of, of, of reality that's not done by your own hands. And you're overwhelmed and you're filled with grief. And there's such sorrow. No matter whatever is causing it or inflicting it upon you, God is faithful. And as the psalmist turns to God, I encourage us all to do the same. To do the same. Because in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Don't allow your sorrow and your agony to be your God, to be what consumes you and lords over you. No, allow God to be God even in the midst of your storm. Trust in Him. He is the one that can speak and calm the waves. He is the one who promised you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the one that takes what the enemy intends for harm and turns it around for the better. Know your God. I'm always encouraged when I read through the book of Psalms and I see what these psalmists endured. I'm going through my own personal devotion and reading through old hymns. And I can just, every morning I'm just in tears. I'm like, man, what these people endured who wrote these hymns, man, I may not pin a hymn, but let my life be an expression, God, of my hope and my trust in you. Some of the great hymns, if not all of them, from what I'm reading, they were birthed out of such pain and sorrow. And I go, wow. May our lives bring forth and reflect our hope in him. Let's close in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29, verses 29 through 33. For they hated knowledge and chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice and paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. For simpletons turn away from me to death. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency. But here's the good news. <laughs> But all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by fear of harm. <coughs> there is a way in which we are called to live. You want to live like a fool, as if there's no God? Uh, then do so. But remember this, you're going to reap what you sow. You want to remain complacent and just keep doing your thing and not trusting in God? You can do so. But Mark the word. <laughs> you will reap what you sow. You want to act ugly and be ugly? Your life 
It's going to lead you to destruction and chaos. Your choice. Not your parents' choice. Not your best friend's choice. Not your grandparents' choice. Not the church's choice. Your choice. You choose this day whom you will serve. Either God or yourself. You choose. It's your choice. But each of us in this room, understand this. You've heard the truth. And you're going to be held accountable to the truth in which you've heard. So if you choose to get up and live like a fool, as one who says there is no God, you choose to remain simple-minded, ignorant, dumb. If you choose that, then your life will be led into destruction and you will face an eternal hell for eternity. Because you chose it. God doesn't send people to hell. You choose to go to hell. He just is gracious to give you what you chose. If you choose not to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your body, with all of your strength, if you choose not to love him, you can. And that's your choice. But at the end of days, when you take your last breath, your choice is not then and then only when you stand before him to love him. No. He's going to grant you and give you what you loved. Here is your reward. Eternally separated from me. God, you are. If you want to live like a fool, you want to live. And, and, and all of us are sitting here and we're hearing, hearing wisdom and we're hearing knowledge. I counsel with the majority of you sitting in here giving you godly counsel and godly wisdom. But if you choose to refuse to act on it and live in the right way, then your ways are going to go towards destruction. Because you're going to remain in rebellion towards God. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. I know we want to make him a God that will just take whatever we want to throw at him and live however we want to live and he has to forgive us and play the religious games, but God will not be mocked. You're either living for him or you're not. You either belong to him or you don't. So if you refuse the wisdom and the knowledge, if you refuse correction, if you refuse to fear the Lord, if you choose to remain complacent, oh, I'll, get to, I'll get to Jesus one day. I'm going to do what I want to do. I, I don't need Jesus today. Then your life it's going to be filled with strife and destruction. Oh, but the good news, did we hear it? But all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by the fear of harm. He always steps in. He is always faithful to reveal himself to us. He doesn't give up, no matter how much you resist. 
He is faithful to continue to, to intervene, to reveal himself. No, come this way, come this way. Turn from that way, follow me. He's constantly pursuing us because of his great love for us. It's our choice. Either to lay our lives down or to continue to pick it up and go our way. But why would we continue to go our way when we understand that by going our way, it'll lead to destruction? And you can't blame God. I know everybody likes to be mad at God. And how can a loving God send people to hell? No, a loving God gives you what you want. You want to rebel against him? You want the, the temporal things of life because that satisfies you in the moment? Then live for the moment. But that's all you'll have because for eternity you'll be separated from the God who has pursued you, who formed you, who created you, who loves you, who is revealing himself to you, who's made a way for you to be reconciled to him so you don't have to be bound by the old nature, but you can be born again of a new nature and be in relationship with him now and for eternity. Ah, oh, that's great news, you all. You see, we were taken out of the world and then put right back in the world to reveal him to the world. As a Christian, as a Christian, you've been pulled out of darkness and brought into a marvelous light to reflect it so that others would have the same hope as you. And so my final statement for us today, do others see in you the hope of Christ in you? Because if not, I'm concerned. I'm concerned for you. And I would ask that as these final songs are going to play, just don't let the moment just fade away. Ask yourself, are you one who keeps refusing knowledge and wisdom? Are you one who has no fear of God? Are you one who just is remaining complacent? Is your life marked by no hope and destruction? If so, I don't know why you're waiting. I would ask that you would come to Christ as the Spirit of God is drawing you in. And if you're one who, who is accepting knowledge and wisdom, who has the fear of the Lord, who is not remaining complacent, who is growing and maturing as a believer in Christ, I would ask you that during this time that you pray for others in the room, but also ask for yourself that you would continue to grow and mature and that your light would shine and that your lives would begin to impact others because the hour is growing darker. But we as Christians need to fan the flame within and begin to burn Brighter. There's work to be done, you all. The harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. I would ask that you would ask the Lord 
to make you an effective laborer in this harvest. So allow these words of these songs I just want to end with, kind of a longer period of worship in closing today. But I want us to really just take time just to kind of be still and know that He is God and to allow the Lord to work in each of us what He wants to accomplish in us. Amen? And then I'll close this in prayer.
Oh